Good morning. Uh, Glad to see you all this morning. Some people are awake. That's good to see. We're thankful for that. Uh, Let's begin this morning uh, with prayer and just ask God to speak to us, minister to us where we are this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just come into your presence this morning. Uh, Really so very thankful that you love us, that you meet with us. Uh, Lord God, that you are so much more concerned and interested in our lives than we could ever imagine. Uh, Father, help us to sense and uh, just come to grips more and more today with your presence, your active involvement in our life, your, uh, your deep desire to display your glory in incredible ways in our lives. Father, just teach us. Uh, we need your Holy Spirit, Lord, to hear the words of your truth, to open our eyes. So, Father, we just lean on you right now and seek your spirit to minister to us so that we can encounter you and respond in worship and thanksgiving and praise. So we just give this time to you now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. All right. Um, This morning, you know, I actually, one of the few days in my life when I actually get to somewhere more or less early is on Sunday morning. And uh, I get here, I usually try to get here before 9 o'clock because there's lots of stuff to do. And and, uh, it's one of the few times in my week that I'm actually normally here on time or sometimes even early. But if you know me very well, which many of you do, you know that I'm often late. (laughs) And uh, I'm often late to appointments. If you've met, had to meet me for lunch somewhere, I probably was late. Uh, sometimes uh, I meet people for lunch and they, I'm late, and they're even later, so that's a good thing. Uh, I'm late. I always have a good excuse, though. Well, I can't say I always have a good excuse, but I always have an excuse. And of course, in Thailand, a lot of times we were late because of traffic. You get caught in traffic jams, uh, you get stuck behind a slow truck, uh, some guy in his, you know, some law pedaling along, and it makes you late. Uh, it never fails. You guys have this happen. You're, you're already late for an appointment, and as you're going out the door, the phone rings, like from some foreign country, and it's like, you know, I can't really talk right now. And they talk and talk and talk, and, you know, it makes you late, right? Uh, sometimes I'm late because people come into my office and they want to talk, and I, I really, people are important to me, and I give them time, and sometimes giving one person time and attention causes me to be late to give another person time and attention, right? We all know how that works. Uh, oftentimes I'm late because I just try to squeeze way too many things into way, short, too, way too short a time. And I, uh, I try to pack too much into my schedule. I can't do it, and I'm late. I get places behind schedule. Uh, and you can credit that to being not very organized or whatever. Uh, one of my favorite excuses, you know, I'm late because I'm married and I have four daughters. That's got to count for something. Uh, now, of course, I'll hear from them that you know, they're not the reason they're late, and they're probably right. Um, you know, time is a problem for us, and you know, uh, time ticks by. In fact, it's just amazing to me that it's already June of another year. Do you realize we're counting, we're, we're on the downhill slide to Christmas. Yeah, that's, just sad, that's just depressing. Uh, time races by for us. It does not hold still. Uh, my watch, my clock does not come with a break, right? I can't put the brakes on time and let myself catch up. It zooms by. Uh, my watch only has an accelerator. You know, it just keeps going faster and faster. I haven't figured out how to put the brakes on. And because of that, we get run over a lot of times by time. Uh, this past, you know, two weeks ago, we graduated our little baby, our little, our little, my little baby, our fourth daughter graduated from high school. Time is racing by. And so often we are behind, we are late, uh, we get to places not on time. And we, because time races by, oftentimes it appears that we are slow, right? That we are behind, at least for me, I'm slow, I'm out of sync. Uh, and this morning we're going to talk about the slow love of God, the slowness of God. Now, all those things I said about me being late, being slow, not being on time. Uh, God, in my experience, 
is often equally late. And have you had that experience where God was late in your, in your thinking? Now, of course, we know God's timing is perfect, but humanly speaking, you would say God came through slow. I used to have this motto that like, God always answers prayer two weeks late, because for me, that's kind of how it was at that point in my life. Um, but for God, those excuses can't work. God is not slow because there's a traffic jam. He is not slow because time is racing by for him. Uh, God literally has all the time in the world. He's infinite. He stands outside of time. Uh, every minute of, of, from the beginning to the end of time is his, and he is in control and possession of it. And so God is not late because you know, his schedule is too full, right? He is not late because he was busy tied up talking with you know, somebody over here, and so he didn't have time to meet with me. God is not slow because time got away from him. But yet in our experience, oftentimes we would say, God, you know, seems to be slow. He seems to answer our prayers slowly. He seems to move in our lives, not at the pace we would like him to. Um, And that's kind of a problem for us. In fact, throughout Scripture, we don't have time to look this morning, but there's a lot of examples of God coming late, of God coming at a time that for the people at that moment seemed slow, it's like, God, where are you? Why aren't you doing something? And maybe you felt that way. If you haven't, uh, I guarantee in your Christian experience you will. So how do we explain the slowness of God? How do we explain and how do we deal with this fact that God's timetable is apparently not the same as ours? Uh, you know, we can respond by getting impatient, which is what I usually do, or by feeling like God just doesn't care about us. You know, the reality is, I try to, believe it or not, I do try to be on time, because I think it shows people that you care about them. And when you're late a lot, sometimes it can communicate rightly or wrongly that, you, that they're not important. Well, if we apply that logic to God, you know, God, you're slow in my life, we must not be that important to you. And certainly sometimes we can feel that way. That because God does not respond instantly to our requests and our needs, that maybe he's just not interested in us. So how do we deal with this? Well, the story we're going to look at today... Uh, is probably one of the most graphic examples of the slowness uh, and the actual willing and willful delay of God, uh, at least of Jesus. And we're looking this morning in John chapter 11, uh, the story of the raising of Lazarus. And so let's read uh, the first few verses. We're not going to look at the whole passage this morning, just through verse 16. So let me read these first few verses. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So, although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, Let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, Only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus replied, There are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I am glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let's go too and die with Jesus. Um, This story starts out with a a kind of a detailed description of who Lazarus is. He said, A man, Lazarus, was sick. And it gives some details about his sisters and his family. 
Uh, he says this is uh, the brother of Mary and Martha. Uh, of course, if we know our Bibles well, if we've read our New Testament, we know all about Mary and Martha. But interestingly, this is the first mention in John of Mary and Martha. So for John's readers, uh, they are not, at least in this gospel, well, well known. Uh, and John goes further to say that this was not just any Mary, but it was the Mary who later, in chapter 12, pours the expensive ointment uh, on Jesus' head and feet. Uh, why, does, why does John go into all this detail about who, who this Lazarus is? Well, I think that what John is doing here is he's trying to demonstrate that Lazarus is not just anybody. He's not just some guy. And, and often throughout the Gospels, you, you see uh, centurions coming, soldiers coming, uh, synagogue leaders coming, people coming who have heard about Jesus' reputation as a healer. And they're desperate and in need, and they come to request Jesus' help. But John is trying to demonstrate that this is a different kind of scenario. Lazarus has a history with Jesus. And in fact... This family is a, is a family that considered Jesus as a close personal friend. Uh, they were a family who felt, uh, because of their history and time, had a certain right to access Jesus and ask for help. Uh, if you were to talk to Mary and Martha, they would have said, you know, Jesus is our close family friend. He is close to us. He's been in our home, and we know that from the other Gospels. That Jesus had spent time in their home. Uh, that they had an ongoing close personal relationship. And suddenly, that's what John is trying to paint the picture here. That's why it goes into this detail. Here's a guy who, although not, a, not one of the twelve disciples, was certainly a close personal friend of Jesus. All right? Uh, how do friends take care of friends? Okay, if your friend calls you up and says, you know, I'm in the hospital, I got, this, I got dengue fever. You know, poor Stefan. Thankfully, he's back from the dead. Had dengue fever a couple of months ago. He was sick. If you call your friend and say, I'm dying, I need somebody to take me to the doctor. If you were a true friend, what would you expect to, what would, what's the expectation that comes with that? So that's tough for you. I'll pray for you. you know? I'm sorry, though, I'm on my way out to Bacon Bite. I got an appointment with Tom. Don't have time to you know, go to any hospital. But I'll pray for you while we're having lunch. Is that what you would do? Of course not. True friendship has the expectation that we're going to come alongside and help. We're going to come alongside and uh, help our friend who's in need. And so here's this guy who's sick, who's in trouble, who's on the verge of death, who is urgent enough that Mary and Martha send for help. And, uh, and, and so that's the, that's the picture John's painting here. Here's a good friend in desperate need, and the expectation is that Jesus would do what? Would go and help. If he's truly a close, close friend, he will go and help his good friend. Uh, that's what friends do. You know, our, slang, our slogan, our saying, uh, a, friend in need, a friend in need is a fr- friend in need. A friend in need is a friend indeed? Indeed. You know, the idea is that you, know, you help your friends out. Well, as we see, Jesus doesn't. As we see, and of course, if we know the story, we know that knowledge of Jesus does not come quickly, but he intentionally waits until Lazarus dies. Okay? What kind of friend is this? Okay? How would you like to have this kind of friend? You know, well, I'm really hoping... Uh, I'm, I, I'd love to come see you, but I'm really hoping you die first so I can come to your funeral. Okay? I'll send you a card. Okay, what kind of friend is this? And that's exactly what Jesus does, and that's exactly what John is, is painting this scenario. Good, close friend, close relationship with Jesus... Yet Jesus does nothing. Um, it's interesting. This is really not kind of the main theme of the story at all, but I just thought this was an interesting side, side note. Uh, Mary and Martha address and say to Jesus, your, Jesus, your close friend is sick. You know, uh, as you look through the Gospels, there are several people mentioned and named in the Gospels who felt they had a very close, special relationship with Jesus. Certainly the mom of James and John had that. Uh, She felt she could go right to Jesus and ask that he make uh, her sons his right-hand men in the kingdom. Remember that? Uh, You wouldn't do that unless you were pretty bold and brave. You had this special inside track with Jesus. Uh, John, the the writer of this gospel, calls himself throughout the gospel what? The one one who Jesus loved. Okay? That's pretty bold. You know, it's like, who are you? I'm the guy that Jesus loves. Down by the other guys, but Jesus loves me, all right? 
Um, a lot of people apparently had that sense about Jesus. Uh, I think it's significant that for those for whom Jesus was a friend, he was considered a dear and close friend. Uh, certainly the disciples felt that. A lot of people felt that. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha felt that. That Jesus wasn't just Lord and Master, but that he was a close personal friend. And I really believe that that's what Jesus wants us to experience in our relationship with him. He wants you and I to sense the sense that we are in a very close, special kind of friendship with him. That he takes personal time and attention with you and I. Isn't that awesome? Do you sense and feel that? Well, a lot of us don't. And I'm sure that while many people sense that kind of closeness with Jesus, there were others who should have but didn't. There were other disciples who should have felt that they had close access to Jesus, who was a dear, close friend, but because of their own hang-ups, couldn't accept his friendship or accepted it with reservations. You know, I don't want to bother Jesus. I don't want to impose on him. And they didn't understand the kind of friendship that Jesus offered. Later in John chapter 15, Jesus says to his disciples, Now I call you friends. You are my friends. And greater love has no man than this, than that he lays down his life for his friends. That's the kind of friendship Jesus had for all those who choose to call him friend. And the bottom line is that we're in two categories. We are either friend or foe. Either we are in a close relationship with Jesus where we are counted as his friend or we are his enemy under the wrath of God. There's no middle ground. So if you follow Jesus and you put your faith and trust in him, he is a close friend. Closer than any human friend could possibly be. And uh, much as he was with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, uh, there is a kinship, a friendship, a closeness there. Um, the word, the word Mary uses is the word phileo. The one who you have phileo, brotherly love with, is sick. That's the kind of heart Jesus has for you and I as his children. Um, so all of us should come under this, should feel this. All of us should consider our lives so blessed of God through Christ that we are his close personal friend. And when we have difficulties, much as Mary and Martha had with their brother, we should be able to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, uh, you know, we're sick. Jesus, we're having problems. Jesus, things are not going well. Jesus, as our friend, we need your help. Well, they do that, and Jesus responds this way. He says, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death, uh, ultimately, although we know that Lazarus dies. But Jesus says his sickness will not end ultimately in death. No, it happened for it will happen. I'm sorry. No, it did happen for the glory of God, and through it the Son of God will be glorified. Um, you know, one of the most difficult and important questions that we will answer as a believer is is why God allows suffering and difficulty into our lives if we're His best friends, right? In fact, really the question, the question the world asks of us as Christians constantly is that if God is so good and if he is truly powerful over the earth, then why is it he lets such evil things come in to the lives of his creatures? Um, people look at disasters like the one recently in Burma or in China or the tsunami in Thailand or many other difficulties around the world and the unsaved, unbelieving world asks this question over and over again. If God is truly good, and if he's truly all-powerful like you Christians say he is, then why does he keep letting, keep letting these terrible things happen all over the world constantly? Uh, how, do you answer, how do you answer that question? Oh, well, so you, like my first answer is, well, we're all sinners and we deserve it, which is true. Uh, somehow that doesn't sell real well with the world. You know, they don't really buy that too well. Uh, and that works with the whole, you know, sinner's judgment, dying and going to hell thing. They get what they deserve. But the context here is not that kind of person. The context here is not a person who is a sinner dying and going to hell. It's Jesus' friend. Someone who has put confidence and trust as Jesus, as Lord and Savior. Two ladies who are calling out in faith to Jesus. Why does Jesus let his friends go through this kind of difficulty? That's a different question. You as his friends, how do you deal with the times in your life when everything just falls apart 
and goes terribly wrong. Uh, uh, some people have answered the question this way. They say, well, God is good, but he's not all-powerful. He, he's not in control of everything in the world, and he would love to prevent it, but he can't. Uh, I just heard, within the past year, I heard, uh, I heard a sermon where the guy basically said that. He says, well, you know, God's good, and he loves you. He loves you so much, and if he could help you, he would, but he can't. Well, that's not the God I serve. The God I serve is all-powerful. He created the world and everything in it. And if he chose to intervene, he could. But the reality is, sometimes he doesn't. Uh, the, that other answer is sometimes easier to say that, well, God, you know, he would love to help, but he can't. Sometimes that's a little easier to swallow because then it makes God not ultimately responsible. But I, I believe God is all-powerful, almighty, uh, in control of everything and uh, that he does not intervene when he could. As in this case here, Jesus could have left that moment. Well, we know that Jesus didn't even have to leave, right? Jesus could have spoken the word from where he was and said, Lazarus be healed and what would have happened? Lazarus would have been healed. He does not intervene. Sometimes in our life, God chooses not to intervene. Now, it's important to sort out a couple of doctrinal fine points. Uh, the fact that Jesus did not intervene did not mean that he caused his death. Okay, Jesus didn't make Lazarus sick. Sickness and death is a re- direct result of sin and the fall. Okay, God does not send evil. God is not the source or origin of sickness and death. Those are things that are uh, the result of sin and the fall. Uh, he has indirectly allowed them to happen. He's not the direct cause or source of it. When evil things happen in our life, we can't say that God directly sent this calamity on us. But he still is somewhat responsible because he didn't stop it. Right? There's still the sense that you know God could have done something about it to prevent it, and he didn't. Uh, so how do we deal with that? Uh, how, how, do, how do Mary and Martha deal with this? They put out the request... And by the way, at this time, we, I didn't read the verses before, but in chapter 10, it tells us that because of all the pressure in Jerusalem, the Jews had just tried to kill Jesus. They tried to stone him. They were out to murder him. Jesus departs and goes far off into the wilderness in the region where John the Baptist had been baptizing. So he was a good distance away. It probably would have taken at least a day or more for messengers to get to him. It would have taken a day or more. Some people think he could have been as much as three or four days away. Um, But even at that, Jesus, he doesn't respond. How do you think Mary Mary and Martha feel when Jesus doesn't show up? Well, if you've been there, you know exactly how it feels, don't you? You know how it feels when you are counting on God to come through and you are trusting in him to intervene in our lives and he doesn't show up. It's devastating. It is discouraging. And we ask this question, God, if you are good, why do you let these terrible things come into our life? Uh, And you know, this was not just a minor thing. You know, Lazarus does actually die here, okay? It's not like, you know, he has dengue fever for a month or he's got, you know, some serious illness that he eventually recovers from. He does die, okay? That's pretty serious, all right? And Jesus does not intervene. Um, well, I think one of the problems when we come to answer this question, we believe that God is all-powerful, that he is in control, and God is able to intervene if he should choose. So that forces us to look at the other side of this question about the goodness of God. If God is all-powerful, all is he also all-good? Is God truly good? Uh, does God really care about his world? When he lets these things happen, does it shed bad light on his goodness? I remember uh, debating in a science class at a high school one time uh, this very question. And, and uh, we were supposed to be talking about evolution, but it had really you know, gone off these rabbit trails down to this question. And uh, the students, we were, we were debating this question, and I threw it back to them. I said, well, how do you know God is good? Maybe he's not. Well, all of a sudden, the, the atheist uh, science teacher who's pro-evolution gets up and starts presenting the gospel to these students. 
about how, well, Jesus died on the cross and he did all this stuff because he loves us. Isn't he good? I was going, wow, thank you. It's awesome. <laughs> Very well put. Now, what about the goodness of God? Is God truly good? Uh, was it good for Jesus to sit by and watch as his friend, his close friend, died? Is there goodness in that? That's the question. And one of the problems that we wrestle with and that we struggle with is that we really have the wrong idea or concept of what goodness is. We have a very small human picture of what goodness is. And we define God's goodness based on our definition of it. And our definition kind of goes something like this. Good is what makes me comfortable and is convenient for me. And when things come into our life that disrupt our comfort or inconvenience us, we see that as evil, right? Uh, we define goodness in terms of what is good for me in my plans and in my objectives. What I need to accomplish my goals. What I need to make my life comfortable and easy. What I need to do what I think I'm supposed to be doing. Right? That's how we see goodness. That's how the world sees goodness. And if somebody messes with my plans or my objectives or my goals, if somebody messes with my comfort zone then it's, we define it as evil. And we declare that uh, God must not be good because he's, not, because he's brought this great inconvenience to me. You know, for Lazarus, uh, I'm sure being sick to the point of death was not an enjoyable experience. I'm guessing he was not comfortable. I'm guessing, I don't know what kind of disease he had, but I've, I've been sick where I thought, I've been sick where I wished I would die, right? You've been there? Uh, it's not fun. It hurts. It's, it's not comfortable. And not only that, it is a huge inconvenience, right? Dying is very inconvenient. You know, I could just see, I don't know what Lazarus did if he was like a business guy or whatever, but I just think it would be fun like the next week after this all happened when he went into work and his boss is like mad at him for not showing up for four days. And he could honestly say, well, you know, I had a little, I had a little setback. I was a little tied up. I was dead. You know, I love that excuse. Wouldn't it be a great deal to do that? You know, sorry I missed the meeting last week. I was dead. You know, great. Students, I mean, high school students. You know, teacher, I'm sorry I wasn't able to finish my project, but I was dead. I mean, the teacher's got to accept that, you know. Uh, very inconvenient, right? And we see that as an evil. We, we look at that and we say, when, when, when God messes with my, my life, that cannot be good. Because we have the pride and audacity to think that we always know what's best for us. And that my plans and my purpose and my comfort and you know, my will is the ultimate good. Of course, that's where we start breaking down in our understanding of evil and goodness. Because that is not ultimately goodness. That's not to say that enjoying life, uh, having comfort... Uh, having things go our way are not always evil, but they're not necessarily good. Jesus redefines goodness. And he tells us what true goodness is. He says, this has come about, because first of all, Lazarus' sickness is not unto death. Uh, certainly, ultimate death is great evil. Uh, coming to the place of ultimate eternal separation from God is a great evil. God chooses that for no person. Everyone chooses that for themselves. Every human being who comes to ultimate death and destruction gets there by their own will and their own choosing. God chooses that and wishes that for no person. Uh, and, and Jesus assures us, you know, this is not going to end in ultimate death for Lazarus. Yes, he dies once. He gets raised. He dies again. Neither one of those things are a problem. We'll see next week as we look further. Jesus talks about being the resurrection and the life and what that means. So we won't go into detail there. But then Jesus goes on and he says, this has happened so that the glory of God might be revealed. This has come into Lazarus' life in order that God might be glorified. Throughout the Gospel of John, when, when, G, when John uses this phrase, it is always about God revealing himself, who he is in his character, character glory, and power. God's glory is what he does in and through our lives. God's glory is what he does creating the world and redeeming mankind. 
okay, God's glory is His goodness being revealed to the world. Is God good? Yes or no? Is God good? Some of you look confused. God is good. How do we know He's good? We only know He is good as He has revealed His goodness to us. Jesus came, He says, I came to reveal the Father, to make the Father known, to manifest and display the goodness of the Father to the world. That's why Jesus came. To show us the goodness of God. Jesus says, short and simple, He says, I have come, uh, and and this, this, this evil, this setback, this illness in Lazarus' life has come so that the glory of God might be displayed. And not only that, but ultimately, that through this, that Jesus as the Son of God would be glorified. Alright? That is true goodness. Uh, If we could redefine goodness in our own lives and minds to see that, our life would get much better. If we would start to see that what God wants to do in your life and mind is to display and show His ultimate goodness in and through our life. How does he do that? Well, in Lazarus' life, he did it by allowing him to suffer to the point of death and then bringing him back to life again. And through that, he did what? He showed his incredible power and goodness. God wants to do that in your life and mine. And he doesn't do that ultimately by making us comfortable and making life go our way. Ultimately, he does that by allowing things from time to time to fall apart in our life or you may feel like every day in your life, so that he can intervene at his time and in his way and set things straight in in a way that demonstrates his power and his glory. Why ultimately does God allow difficulties and struggles to come into the world? Why does he not intervene? Ultimately, it is always to show and display his goodness for those who will see it, for those who will trust him for those who would consider themselves his friend. Um, The question for us is, do we really believe and trust that God is good? We say it, you know, I'm sure we raised hands, all of us say, yes, God is good. But do we really live trusting in his goodness when all of life is falling apart? Uh, Psalms 33 puts it this way. I love this, this psalm. The psalmist says this, Uh, let the godly sing for joy to the Lord Uh, praise the Lord with melodies on the lyre make music for him sing a new song of praise to him play skillfully and sing with joy why? for the word of the Lord holds true and we can trust everything he does can you trust do we trust everything God does even when it seems like he is doing nothing or when it seems like he has come terribly late. For Martha and Mary, were they able to sit there when Jesus did not show up and trust that everything he does is good and is trustworthy? Why can we trust everything? He says we can trust everything God does, verse 5, because he loves whatever is just and good. The unfailing love of the Lord fills the earth. We can trust everything he does because whatever because he loves what is just and good. The unfailing love of the Lord fills the earth. Um, To really trust Jesus is to ultimately trust that everything that comes into your life, everything that comes into your life is the goodness of God. That if you're his friend, uh, he is not going to let anything come into your life that is not ultimately good. But everything he does is good because he loves what is just and good and we can trust his activity in our life. Um, The next verse, uh, John continues on and he says, So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. If you really let those words sink in, they are incredibly powerful. Uh, Give what's going on here. Lazarus is sick. He is about to die. Uh, Jesus is aware of the grief and anguish and suffering. We know that Jesus was very close to both Mary and Martha. He knew how painful this would be for them. 
to sit and watch their brother suffer and then die. And yet it says Jesus stayed put for two days and did not move. He stayed where he was. He delayed. He was intentionally slow to respond. Um, if you have been in this position, uh, you know, to, to just put ourselves in Mary and Martha's place. Okay, you put out the word, and not only does Jesus not help, but he doesn't even show up. Okay, he doesn't even come and offer a card. You know, he doesn't even bring flowers or a fruit basket. He just flat doesn't come. That does not feel like love. Okay? And if you've been in that place in your life, you know that when God delays and He is slow, it does not feel like love. It feels like abandonment. It feels like we have been neglected and that we are not important to Him. Humanly speaking, that is what it feels like when God is slow. Uh, if you've ever prayed earnestly and poured your soul out to God and then nothing happened, you know that feeling. That God, where are you? Uh, sadly, some people deal with that by deciding, well, God just doesn't do that anymore. God's just not a God who is active in our life anymore. Rather than choosing to think that God you know, is, is uncaring, we just say, well, God's caring, but he just doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore. And we come, become resigned to the fact that, well, God's this, then he's detached. He's a faraway friend who takes very little interest in our life. I know so many believers who have come to that place in their life where they just see God as a distant being who's only slightly interested in their life and he's left us to suffer and struggle on our own and he just doesn't show up. He's just not here. And they think, well, that's just the way God is. Uh, that's not the way friends are, okay? Don't ever resign yourself that that's the kind of God God is. That he just really doesn't care about you and he's really not your friend. He's God, he's going to save you someday, you know, you'll live in heaven. But in the meantime, you're pretty much on your own. That's not the God we serve. And that's not the Jesus that's portrayed even in this passage. And I love that, uh, that in this story we get to see behind the scenes a bit. And we, as the observer outside looking on, see that Jesus deliberately delays because it has a great purpose. And that purpose is greater than if he had responded. Okay? When you start feeling that way, when you start feeling God's abandoned me, he's delayed, he's, he's slow, he's not showing up, you need to tell yourself this. In fact, you should write it somewhere in your Bible so you don't forget. And when you start feeling this way, you pull it, you go somewhere there's a card that says something I'm supposed to know when I'm feeling this way. Pull that, you need to write this down. When God doesn't act today, it's because he's going to do something far greater tomorrow. Okay, when God does not act today, when he does not answer, he does not work and move today, it's only because he wants to do something far greater tomorrow to display his goodness and power, to show his glory. And I love it that John is very careful and very clear to, to communicate that this had nothing to do with Jesus' love or affection for this family. He says, although Jesus loved... In fact, it could, the, the construction of the Greek here could well be translated, because he loved them so much, he delayed. It was out of his true love for them that he was willing to wait, because what he wanted to show them was so much greater than had he responded immediately. The same is true in our life. It doesn't feel like love when God does not show up, but we have to be confident that his love for us is unending, that it will never run out or fail, that regardless of what the circumstances are, it never has anything to do with God's love for us. Okay, do you believe that? I believe it some of the time. Honestly, a lot of times when things don't go well, the first thing I doubt is God's love. You know, I think, you know, maybe God, you know, he loves me, but he, he just forgot about me. Or he's too busy. Or he's preoccupied. Or he, like me, is engaged with other things and he's just slow to get here. That's not the God we serve. He has all the time in the world. If he's slow, he's slow on purpose. He's slow because he chose to be slow. 
And he's slow because it is how he will show his goodness in your life. It is his love that causes him to be slow. And it is one mark of his great compassion for us. Remember that. Write it down. Uh, you know, Put it somewhere where you'll see it. When God does not answer our prayer today, it's because he wants to do something greater in our life through this struggle and this difficulty. And it's never a question of his love. Uh, Psalm 33. The, the unfailing love of the Lord fills the earth. Fills the earth. God loves to love. Uh, God is always good. And sometimes we get this idea that when God is just and he executes judgment, then he stops loving. That's impossible for God. God is single in his nature. And he loves and is wrathful together. You cannot se- separate or divide out those attributes. When he, when he works, it is all out of his love and goodness and justice. You can't sort out those things in his life, unlike us. When I'm angry, I'm angry, and I'm not very loving, right? God is infinitely able to do all equally at the same time. He goes on and says that uh, finally, after two days, Jesus says, okay, it's time. Let's go back to Judea. Somehow Jesus sovereignly and divinely knew and understood that Lazarus had died. He deliberately waited until Lazarus was dead. Uh, Why did he do that? Well, he did it to show God's glory, but he did it also because he wanted to do a very special kind of miracle. Uh, The Jews believed that when when you died, the spirit or the soul hovered around the body for a couple days until decomposition started. And the idea was that the the soul was wanting to go back home. And it wasn't until things started to rot that they were going, okay, this is a lost cause. I'm leaving, right? Um, Jesus wanted to do a special kind of miracle. He wanted to not just heal a sick person. He had done that. And that was a great thing. He didn't want to just bring back somebody who was mostly dead. Okay? He had done that already. And... uh, and that was a very great thing. He wants to bring back somebody who's completely dead. You know, the soul's gone, the spirit's gone, the flies have come, and it's over. Okay, it is over. There's no question. You know, four days dead is, is really dead. Things start to go bad after four days. Uh, it's no longer winter. Uh, it's starting to get hot. We won't go into details. Okay, it's bad after four days. Jesus wants to do a very special kind of miracle. So he's waited, time's up. He says, okay, it's time to go. Uh, Interestingly, his disciples object. They're going, Jesus, what are you thinking? Now, to get the picture, this Bethany where where Lazarus lived is only two miles, less than two miles from Jerusalem. It is ground zero in terms of enemy activity. Uh, Just a, a short month before this, John chapter 10, they had tried twice, they picked up stones to stone him. Is that the danger in Jerusalem is so real that now the, the disciples are very aware of it. Okay, as slow as the disciples were and as clueless, they were missing this one. Okay, they're going, Jesus, you know, they're out to kill you. And if you go there, they will. Let's just stay here. It's nice here. We're enjoying the fishing. You know, it's quiet. Crowds are coming up. People are still getting saved. Let's just do rural ministry. Okay. Uh, Jesus answers in a bit of a parable. He says, there's 12 hours of daylight. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because the light of the world is here. But in darkness, people stumble. Uh, Short explanation of that. Jesus is saying, look, while it's daylight, we work. Uh, The sun is here. I'm here. The light is here. It's daylight. We work. Our friend needs help. We're going to work. We're not going to fear enemies. And Jesus shows great courage. He says, we're going to do God's work. We're not going to let man dictate where we go and don't go. In God's time, I will go to the cross. But while it's daylight, we will work. And then he says, you know, Lazarus is asleep. And the disciples go, well, that's good. Sleep is good. You know, he's recovering, he's recuperating. Let's just stay here. We don't want to wake him up. You know, the whole visitor thing, you know, and people in and out, you just don't recover. We'll stay here. Jesus says, no, it's kind of past that. He's pretty much dead. And uh, we need to go wake him up. Um, 
So Jesus is committed to his friends. Uh, he is committed. It's another picture of his commitment as a friend to come and not abandon them, to be there in spite of its risk. Then Jesus says another very strange thing that um, taken wrongly sounds very strange. He says, Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes I am glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Um, Jesus does not say, I'm glad he died. Okay, it's real important to read it, not read it that way. Jesus is not glad that Lazarus has suffered. Jesus is not glad for the misery of Mary and Martha. And uh, later on, as we'll see next week, uh, it's very clear that when we suffer and struggle, Jesus suffers with us. There is no joy. He's not a, you know, a sadist who sits in heaven going, man, I wonder how I can make you know, my children squeam and, and squirm and suffer and struggle. Okay, he suffers with us. Whatever pain we feel, he feels along with us. Uh, he takes no joy or delight in the suffering of this world. But he takes great joy in the work God is doing in our life. He says, I take great joy. I am delighted at the opportunity for how you are going to see the glory of God revealed and what that will do to build your faith. He says, I'm very excited that you will hopefully see at last who I really am. See, all this time Jesus had been seeking to reveal himself to his disciples and, he, and, and, and other people in Israel. And he had fed 5,000, he had fed 4,000, he had calmed the sea, he had walked on water, he had done all these miracles It wasn't really sinking in yet. And Jesus is hopeful that maybe raising a guy completely dead will start to get through, start to reveal the extent of his glory and majesty as the God come to earth. He says, I, I am excited for what this will do to build faith in your life because Jesus wants to be their friend. He wants them to acknowledge him as great Lord and King, as God eternal, who is the friend who can be their redeemer and rescuer. Jesus is earnest that they would understand this. Uh, I believe Jesus has the same heart for us today. He wants to reveal himself to you in ways that are real and powerful. He does not want you to possess a Christianity that is simply something you know academically in your head, but which you have never encountered him personally and powerfully. Jesus wants to bring you to a place where you desperately need him so he can do cool miracles in your life. So he can do things deeply in your heart and life. Now sometimes he does great miracles like this. Sometimes he answers prayer powerfully by uh, healing us from sickness and rescuing us from financial catastrophe. But that's not the only work that these things produce. Oftentimes God brings us through difficult and suffering not because of the work he wants to do outside but because of the chiseling and shaping and reshaping he wants to do in our heart and life. Uh, we know from other places in scripture that these kind of trials do build character. I hate that phrase. You know, we're going through this because it builds character. Yeah, I don't want character. I want a comfortable life. You know, I want, I want my toys back. I want, I want life to go my way. Um, but God delights in character. God delights in us being Christ-like. Uh, this past few weeks, especially this past week, I've just been bombarded with staff problems, people not getting along, and, and none of it's because people are being Christ-like, you know? People are not fighting and beating each other up because they're so godly. They're doing it because they're selfish and because they're self-centered and because they need character. And I'm rejoicing if God would bring character into their lives. And I'm doing it for the wrong reason. Jesus, you know, I'm doing it for selfish reasons. Jesus did it because he genuinely wants his character in us. Because he genuinely wants us to see and be in this friendship where he reveals himself as Lord and King and friend in all the beauty and splendor of his majesty. He rejoices in the work this produces in us. That's why James can say, I count it all joy when I fall into these trials. Right? Jesus was joyful because of the work it would produce and the work that it would produce was faith. He says, now at last, maybe you will believe who I am. 
Maybe you will see with your own eyes the extent of my love and friendship for you. And for that he rejoiced and delighted. Uh, this seg- section, segment, ends with, with Thomas, who kind of comes out of the blue. You know, this whole story with Jesus and his friends and Mary and Martha. And uh, kind of out of the blue, Thomas comes on stage and he makes this bold declaration. He says, Well, let's go to and die with Jesus. It's like really random. And you're reading this story and you go, Wow, where did this come from? Whoa. Go, go, Thomas. Um, I think it's a good cap to this section, though. Uh, I don't know all of what John was thinking as he wrote this. Um, but it, it's a good picture of what what this kind of faith produces in the life of a follower. If we are convinced in the goodness of God, if we are convinced in His sovereign power to order things in our life so that He brings only what is good into our life, we can have that kind of confidence confidence that Thomas did. Uh, I used to read this because we kind of are tainted with a bad impression of Thomas as this great doubter. And it's easy to read this as kind of like the Eeyore syndrome. You know, well, let's go die with Jesus. It's all we can hope for. Well, I don't, think that's, I don't think that's what this is about. I think Thomas is exercising genuine devotion and commitment. The kind of faith that says, Jesus, you're in control. You are the boss. If it means dying with you, I trust you. And I will die for you. I will die with you. I will trust my life to you if it means death. If Lazarus dying brings about your glory, then may I die too. If somehow my life would portray to the world the glory and goodness of God, then God do whatever in my life it requires to do that. Thomas says, I'll die, Lord Jesus, for you. Not because he was heroic or noble, but because he was convinced that that is goodness. You know, if we could grab hold of that in our life, there's an incredible freedom that comes with that. You don't have to worry anymore when you know that the worst possible thing that could happen to you is dying and it's not that big a deal. That the worst thing that could happen to you is you could suffer, you could lose all your possessions, you could have a cyclone wipe out your home and possessions and you could be left with nothing but the shirt on your back and know that that is a good thing and the sovereign wisdom of God because somehow through it God will display his glory and goodness through you. There is nothing greater in life than to be in that place where God reveals himself through you. Uh, Sadly, we cling to our own comfort and convenience and we resist going to that place where we would say, Jesus, we give it up all for you not to be noble or a martyr, but simply to say, God, we trust that whatever you do in our life will be to your ultimate goodness for our benefit and your glory. Are we at that place in our life today? Uh, We can only be there if we are convinced that God is good and that we can trust everything he does. Let's pray.